0: Nomai mai haere mai. kōrero, Auckland Libraries in association with Ancestry and Ancestry Pro-Genealogists present a special selection of talks honouring New Zealand's military history. Michael Belgrave is Professor of History at Massey University. He is the author of Dancing with the King, an exploration of diplomacy and peacemaking in the decades between the Waikato Wars and the opening of the King Country and it's um, it's great to be here and I just um, want to say that one of the things that we've been doing at Massey is actually doing a lot of research that involves relationships between genealogists and and historians so if any of you are interested in that they can probably drop me a line. Um, The New Zealand wars were often in memory overshadowed by the First World War. Um, By the time of the First World War New Zealand was uh, commemorating the the first 50 years of the New Zealand Wars. And um, the experience of the New Zealand Wars, kind of, cru- sorry, of the First World War, crushed many of the understandings of the wars, except for the fact that at the end of the Great War, the government sponsored um, Cowan's two-volumed History of the New Zealand Wars now i 'm going to actually go back behind me we 've got Christ Church, which is my first experience of the New Zealand Wars as about a um, five year old having a holiday in Russell with my family um, and being absolutely absorbed by the bullet holes um, in the side of the church, the cannons that were on the waterfront, and also the the uh, flagpole standing there and and Waitangi itself that we went and visited and I think that was the point where I became a historian um, and embroiled in a sense of the past. We need to I think understand the New Zealand wars and, and remember the New Zealand wars in two levels. There's the kind of macro story, the national story of the New Zealand wars and then I think we have to understand that the New Zealand wars are remembered very differently in different locations. And of course, at at the extent to which Iwi remember the the wars depends very much on their own experience of those wars. Um, And and even though, say the Tauranga campaign is is similar, is part of the same campaign as the the Waikato uh, uh, battles, um, the wars in both places are actually remembered differently by iwi depending on lots of things, depending on the nature of the battles, the coalition of forces behind them, uh, and also, and I think this is really important, the extent of land confiscation which took place afterwards. It also depends on what side you're on. In Christchurch there is the memorial to uh, several members of the Hazard uh, who were killed uh, in the Northern War when Korararaka, uh when Russell was um, was taken and largely abandoned by both the, the government and by the, um, the settlers at the time. But there's also a memorial for Tamati Wakanene, uh, who was crucial. And one of the most important things to know about the New Zealand wars is that the, the imperial forces and the colonial forces relied extensively on Maori who were always described as friendly when Tamati Okanane died in 1871, he is buried in that same uh, graveyard. And his memorial emphasises that he was a friend of the Pākehā and one of the first to accept the sovereignty of the Queen. And um, that is a kind of a trope that comes through in the way that the European world remembered Māori who, who fought alongside uh, imperial and colonial troops. So Ihaka Fanga uh, um, from the East Coast is also remembered when he died in Nuhaka uh, as being an acceptance of the sovereignty of the Queen and also uh, someone who was a friend of the Europeans. Those two things very much encapsulated in the way that the European world believed and understood the role of, of, of Māori in supporting the colonists and the colonial forces. At the time when battles took place, quite a few memorials were set up. those memorials are often forgotten today. They're often in obscure places because they're where little actions took place. Um, and even those ones that exist, say, in in, in Auckland, to uh, Marmaduke Nixon, Colonel, who was killed at uh, uh, people would drive past that memorial every day and think it was simply a memorial of the First World War. The biggest memorial of the New Zealand wars is actually <laughs> unknown to most of its inhabitants, but the town of Hamilton, named after Captain Hamilton. Who was killed at the Battle of uh, Gate Pā Pukahinahina in 1864? Uh, Greerton, named after Colonel Greer, who led the forces, uh, the the Imperial forces at the time. I grew up thinking Nixon Street was Nixon Street, without realising in Hamilton that it was named after Colonel Nixon. The names of streets, the names of places, were often embedded into the landscape. And they have survived, but they've also been significantly forgotten. Those early memorials, obviously, and you can see this today, uh, did not commemorate Maori losses, did not commemorate those fighting against the crown. After the wars, there was an attempt, there was a lot of peacemaking which actually took place, which tends to be forgotten. And the first level of peacemaking is between those tribes who fought against the crown and those who fought with the crown. Uh, Those tensions that were created, those Iwi worked to resolve those tensions. There was also, and this is is where my book comes in, an attempt by the Kingitanga, by the forces who fought um, for the Kingitanga against the invasion, uh, to actually reconcile themselves with the government. Um, those those were very rich negotiations, but they were doomed to fail for two main reasons. The first was the confiscations of land could not be redone. So the major grievance that Māori had at that time was about the confiscations, particularly for Waikato. And for those tribes who'd lost less land, but wanted to retain the autonomy and control and ownership of their lands, then the conflict was about keeping the native land court out, a way of preventing um, the native land court was a very effective institution by government for stripping Māori of their land. But this form of reconciliation shouldn't be actually um, ignored completely. rewi uh, the demon, in European imagination in 1864, becomes very much a, a mediator between the Kingitanga and the European world. Um, he, when he be, when he comes to Auckland, eventually he's lionized as the hero of Arauco, the person who had stood up and said, "We will fight on forever and ever." Ake, ake, ake. Um, he is treated as a major celebrity. The way that the European world started to refashion its understanding of the New Zealand Wars actually lies not in the battles overall, not in the war overall, but in particularly in some specific battles, particularly in the Battle of Araco, where um, the heroism, as it was seen by Europeans of Māori, and also the generosity of Māori to the wounded, uh, was noted by soldiers at the time. The same was true at Pukahina, where um, European losses were the biggest of any engagement in the war. But the rules of engagement that had been established, the way that um, bodies bodies of troopers had not been in any way um, defiled or even stripped of their possessions, uh, and the kindness that was given to a number of wounded, um, particularly by women, were things that were remembered immediately. Now, I have it, and you need to add. However, that at the Battle of Tiranga, uh, a few weeks later, was a very vicious battle, a vicious hand-to-hand battle, where in many cases the the, the troops took out a vengeance on those who had uh, caused so many deaths at the time uh, at um, at Gate Par. By the end of the nineteenth century, um, there is a sense that. Europeans are starting to own the wars, not just as an exercise in in conciliation, but in developing a sort of new myth of nationhood. This is going to be fully embraced most by uh, James Cowan, the official historian of the New Zealand wars, whose two volumes will um, really Layer uh, a kind of fabric of of, of nationalism, um, but also a way of interpreting the wars, which will last pretty well unchallenged until Jamie Ballacher's New Zealand Wars book in the 1980s. Cowan's history, if we read it today, looks particularly dated. Um, Cowan was not an imperialist, and I think that's one of the most important things to know about Cowan. He had no great interest in empire and he did not see the wars as being a fight for the Queen. He saw the wars much more in the way that the American West had been won, as a kind of uh, exciting um, clash between enemies who learnt to respect each other and their coming together would be a key part of creating a sort of national culture, national identity at the same time. Now that at first level may be seen as, as completely glossing over the nature of the wars, their, um, the brutality of what took place, although Cowan can be pretty explicit about some of the brutality that took place. But it also needs to be remembered that in the 1930s, Cowan was the primary advocate on behalf of resolving the confiscations he took every opportunity to remind those citizens of the Waikato that they were living on confiscated land, on stolen land. And in fact, this part of his story got censored out of his contribution to the centennial history in in 1940. Now, needless to say, or I do have to say it, that Maori understandings of the war both shared aspects of this because of the kind of peacemaking that took place later, but also were very different, and very different depending on where you were. So uh, Waikato in particular, and uh, particularly those who had been involved in the different battles, and we have to remember that these battles are not fought by the same people. <laughs> Even though they're part of a campaign, the personnel involved on the Māori side in Rangariri is quite different from Oraka. So the, the, the memory uh, involved not just um, Ngāti Maniapoto, Waikato, Rokawa, but also um, Tufaritoa, um, Ngāti Fare, and um, Ngāti Kahununu, uh, who also lent their support to those later battles. I just want to say one thing before I move on to the more more recent time about the uh, – the kind of memorials that were established were tended to be obelisks and they tended obviously to actually um, reflect the very class-based nature of European society in in the middle of the 19th century. So a dead officer was worth a hang of a lot more memorialising than a dead uh, trooper. However, what is really important is that in the memorials and in the... um, tombstones, there is a really important um, attempt to name people, to name them, to give their age, to give their rank, to identify them as being a casualty of the New Zealand wars. That doesn't occur with, with, with Māori. I mean, after um Hinahina. Hina, A number of Māori were actually taken to the the military hospital to be looked after. Half of them died, but we only know the name of one of them. Only one was recorded. When we look at how Cowan treats uh, the Māori dead, wherever possible he names them. And his ability to actually... Tell the story of what has occurred, say during the Siege of Oraco, depends on the extent that he has actually been able to talk to Māori to understand the oral histories that are associated with those events uh, as part of his method. I consider Cowan one of the first major historians of New Zealand. Um, I think he I consider him superior to Reeves, who was always, when I was a, a graduate, presented as the, the first major New Zealand historian. But Cowan has his major limitations as well, um, particularly his his attempt to want to romanticize the wars uh, as a basis for a foundation of nationalism. During the 1960s, a new generation of historians uh, started to rethink the wars. And of course, in, in, in the 1960s, we had the centenaries Uh, of those wars. I was, as a child, present at the centenary of Rangariri and of uh, of Gate Pa. My memories are very limited. Um, But what I do remember is men with beards. Now in the 1960s men did not have beards at the beginning of the 1960s. By the end they might have, but in the beginning to have a beard was quite distinctive. But what that memory of Beards suggests is a real problem with the way that the wars were remembered in the centenary. Um, Because not only were the wars, the centenary, sorry, was was 1864, the centenary of the wars, it was also the centenary of Hamilton. So Hamilton, which was the, the booty of the war, um, was a town that was created, developed, and by 1964 was celebrating its um, its centenary and taking very little notice of the Maori world that was, a key, that was around it, or of the fact that it was sitting on confiscated land. Um, and the beards were there because there was a beard growing competition to mark the, the centenary because 19th century people had beards, modern people didn't in 1964. Historians like Keith Sinclair, Um, to a lesser extent, Bill Oliver, um, started to be much more critical of the wars. Keith Sinclair's PhD was the causes of the wars. But they still fitted, he still fitted the wars into a sort of nationalist framework that in the end, despite his, I think, very realistic understanding of the conflicts, the, the residual bitterness associated with the wars, there's still an overhaul belief that in the end, the creation of a national society with its own culture is worth it and really important. That changes very much in the late 1960s. So we've all looked at the the Vietnam protests that Stephen's been talking about. Um, the development of a much more critical, a much more divided, and a much more tense New Zealand society, with the emergence of uh, a critical Māori voice that had been there, but largely silenced until that time. Um, that had emerged also because Māori were part of the urban world, that they had not been earlier. The wars then start to get re-evaluated. And they get re-evaluated as Māori develop a greater collective understanding of uh, and critique of colonization and see the wars as part of the extension of empire, part of the extension of the European world, and not just the battles that their ancestors fought in. That national perspective, Māori nationalism, Māori sovereignty movement, starts to join together for Māori these different campaigns, these different papa, to actually start to get an overall picture. While at the same time, historians like Judith Binney are making a much stronger and much more robust analysis of what's occurring and starting to, to try and um, attempt to provide uh, pictures of the war, which are defined by Maori, and the increasing number of Maori historians that have emerged in the last uh, twenty or thirty years, has helped to do that. I'm just going to finish by talking about the impact of, of, of James Ballacher's book, uh, *The New Zealand Wars*, and his his television series, which is probably more influential than the book. Ballacher's basic premise was that the battles were for the most part won by Māori and the war was lost by Māori. Um, Now that's been significantly criticized by some people on this panel, Um, but what it did in many ways was develop a new sense of pride in Māori um, resistance. Um, The way that Hinahina is now very strongly remembered, the way that that brought into the 150th anniversary was about a sense of we did things right we were militarily successful uh, and uh, we could beat you <laughs> in occasions when things worked reasonably well. And not only that, it wasn't an accident that we did win these particular encounters. Um, it was because we had adjusted to the, to the military needs of dealing with things like bombardment and um, the like. Um, I think that's been a really important resurgence. Um, in more recent years, just in the last few years, we've had the whole emphasis, um, which people like uh, Vincent O'Malley, but also the Oturahonga, um secondary school students have pushed a recognition that somehow, in terms of the school curriculum, but also in terms of New Zealand's popular memory, the wars had been largely forgotten and that the 150th anniversary of the wars occurring at the centenary of the First World War had left our attention to those wars uh, rather marginal. And if we look at the change in government policy over teaching New Zealand history in schools, it is really that push to have our understanding of the wars and a national day for the wars uh, acknowledged that has been a substantial part of that. And I just want to finish by actually talking about how that curriculum might work. Um, We are not going to see a prescriptive list of things that children need to know, children, young people need to know. Uh, We're going to see uh, a balance try to emerge between a national story, those things that that everybody has experienced, and where the New Zealand wars has a national story, um, uh, you know, and the confiscation has the national story. But at the same time, this curriculum is going to be located in the experience of individuals, of individual communities, of individual hapū, uh, and of, of, of all sorts of different um, new migrants, specific communities, whose experience of New Zealand history is going to be grounded In their localities and their communities but being connected to this larger national story i think i'll finish there you've been listening to an auckland libraries podcast you can find further information on our page at soundcloud or see the auckland libraries website